Go ahead and go to Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 20. While you're going there, I do want to kind of cast some vision for the time that we have on Sunday mornings and give you an idea of where we are headed the next several weeks. We have been in Daniel since October. Can you believe that? Uh, Daniel started all the way back in October, and we will finish Daniel in a couple weeks here at the end of February. And it has been a joy um, to study this book with you. We we came back from our sabbatical uh, right in the middle of it, and it has been a joy um, to be in this book. And you know what's been really cool for me? is to see different men from our church get on stage uh, and really step in faith to preach to you, uh, to guide us in the scriptures. And I, and I know for some of you, it can be challenging every week to have different people up here. Um, but I'll tell you, I am encouraged. And here's why. Because it hasn't mattered who's up here. The word has been preached faithfully. It has been preached correctly. Um, and it has been led by the Holy Spirit. And so I am really encourage that one thing that will never change here to the best of our ability is that it doesn't matter who is bringing the word, but that it will be done faithfully, and it will be done true, and it will be done right. And so Nathan, Danny, Tristan, I thank God for each of you uh, for stepping in faith into a spot that can be difficult um, and guiding us in the truth and grace of the gospel. Now, where are we headed? Next week, we will have Lucas Turner back one more time. Uh, You know, he came in when renewal was in a time of chaos, uh, when there was a lot of uncertainty, and he gave some stability for us as a faith family. And so really next week, we want to just shower him and his family with thankfulness. And so he'll be with us one last time. And then two weeks from now, Jason Gish from our Sending Church will be here, and that will be a time, uh, a celebration as we close out Daniel. Now, having these different men preach has given me the opportunity since I've been back to meet and talk with many of you. I haven't had had the chance to do it with everyone, but to talk with many of you, to think and pray about the future of renewal, to to ease back in for my own health and spiritual maturity. It's allowed me to really think about who God is and where God would have us leading renewal. But in March, I will be more consistent in the ministry of preaching, and I'm excited to shepherd you in that way. And I'm really excited about our next series that will start in March. It's going to be called Songs of Hope, and we are going to be looking at different psalms and asking God the question, okay, God, who are you, and who are we in light of that? It will start in March, and it will go all the way to Easter, and my prayer is that as a church, through the Songs of Hope, through looking at different psalms, we can establish for ourselves a rhythm of prayer, that no matter what, we are identified that we are a praying people. Because it's really attempting to attempt to do the work of God without God. Meaning that we can come up with the best ministry philosophy or strategy for us to be the best church and for us to reach every single person in the city. But at the end of the day, if we aren't a praying people, we are essentially attempting to do the work of God without God. Um, And so we're going to take that series in Psalms to create a rhythm for ourselves as a faith family for how to pray, where prayer is normal here. And so we will use the Psalms as a guide for that. Also in March, uh, it's going to be an exciting month, because that is when we will bring forward recommendations for who our next elders should be. And so throughout the month of March, through prayer, we're going to be asking God, who are the men that God is leading to shepherd 
this church. And so we'll pray together as a faith family on Sunday mornings. Um, We're going to be asking the men to pray for themselves and their family to think about and consider if this is what God would have for them. You're going to be praying in your home groups and hopefully praying in your private times. You'll be given opportunities to ask them questions. They'll be given opportunities to ask you questions. You'll have opportunities to hear their stories, all with the hopes that God will give both us as a faith family and them and their families um, clarity on if they should be stepping into the role of elders. So you'll be hearing more about that in the coming weeks, about elders in the next series. However, today we are in chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. And let me tell you, if you haven't looked at it yet, this one is a doozy. So buckle up, because it's going to be fun today. Daniel 9, verses 20 through 27. Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for a mercy, uh, for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore... And understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All right, so we're going to put this into two sections. We're going to go 20 to verse 23, and then we're going to go 24 to 27. The first three verses of our text is God's response to Daniel's prayer in verses 1 through 19. And as Danny mentioned last week, Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9 was a response to the prophecy of Jeremiah that said that there would be a 70-year exile for the people of God. And in that prayer, Daniel recognized the majesty of God, but he also recognized the need for the people of God to confess their Sin. So now we're going to see God's response. And it's interesting. In verse 21, Daniel says, While I was speaking. Isn't that interesting? Like, it's almost as if Daniel wasn't even done with his prayer before an angel essentially interrupts him. Like, the phrase is used, swift flight, which I wonder, like, why he thought that. I think sometimes when we pray, we wonder. Does God actually hear us? Like, does he legit hear us? 
And what's encouraging here is that we see God's response to Daniel's prayer literally as he is praying. And this is almost kind of a side note, but this tells us that when we pray, God hears us in that very moment. It's not like you're putting your prayer in a letter, putting a stamp on it, and hoping that God hasn't changed his address. He hears you, and he hears you immediately. Now, when and how God chooses to answer our prayers, that's up to him, but it reminds me of what the prophet Isaiah said in 65, 24, where it says, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Or Psalm 139, 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And so God sends Gabriel. And here's what he tells him. He's, in verse 22, it says, he made me understand speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. Now, if you remember back to the beginning of the book of Daniel, Daniel's, one of Daniel's characteristics is that he has a lot, a high level of understanding. That God has given him understanding beyond his peers. He's given him the ability to interpret visions, to interpret dreams. But in this moment, God is going to give him even more understanding. And I found this interesting at the end of verse 23. It says, therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So think about this. The gift to understand the things of God does not negate the necessity of Daniel's effort. Does that make sense? Meaning that Daniel is going to have to engage his mind with God, and at the same time, God will give him understanding. And that concept just isn't unique to this moment. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.7, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And that's a helpful lesson for us, especially with what we're about to walk through. Okay, That you have to engage your mind, but then also trust that God is going to give you understanding. That God requires us to think on and consider who he is. Think on what he has done, who he has called us to be. And as we do that, God will give us understanding on these things. There's one more thing that I find striking about these first few verses, and it's that God makes a point here. He makes a point to make sure that Daniel knows that he's loved. Did you notice that? It's really interesting. In verse 23, it says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. If you read that prayer in verses 1 through 19, like if you read Daniel's prayer to God, you can almost feel the weight of it, like how heavy it is, how much emotional turmoil he's in, the heaviness to which Daniel carries for the sins of his people, that they've failed God, they've fallen short, and Daniel is trying to understand these visions that God is giving him. Like there's so much happening with Daniel, and I can only imagine that all of that took a toll on Daniel's mind and Daniel's soul. And I wonder, before we jump into these next few verses, how many of you find yourself in that same exact spot with the weight of everything happening in your life, the weight of your sin, the weight of your calling to be a husband or to be a wife, the weight of your calling to be a present, the weight of looking around at the lostness of this world are like Daniel, the weight of concern for God's people. It can feel like chaos, and it can feel like there's no 
hope. And I think that God knew that Daniel felt that heaviness. So what does he tell him? He says, you're loved. I have a purpose here. This vision, it's for my glory and it's for your good. You are greatly loved. And I hope that you hear that. And you know what's amazing? Daniel longed for lasting forgiveness from God. That's what he really wanted. Lasting resolution for his sins. Reconciliation with God. He dreamed a day when the promised Messiah would come. And we get to, in our lifetime, we get to experience what he dreamed of. We get to experience the promised king, Messiah the Christ, who laid down his life and rose from the grave. So you're not sure if God loves you or that you're not sure if he's forgotten you. Imagine Daniel hearing from those, those words from God because Daniel's had a rough time, hasn't he? With the lion's den, the different kings, right? The visions, the dreams. God makes a point to say, Daniel, before we jump into this, you are loved. You may not feel loved right now. When you look around at your circumstances, you may not feel loved by this world, but God makes a point to say to Daniel, and he has made a point to say to us through the blood of Christ that you are loved. Now, Gabriel is going to share with Daniel some important things about the future, and this is where at one point this week while I was studying for this, one commentator said, now we descend into the abyss. Another one said, welcome to the rabbit hole of all rabbit holes. And then another one said, the 70 weeks is the dismal swamp of the Old Testament study. In fact, in my study this week, I found that the only thing that commentators, pastors, scholars agreed on in these four passages is that these are some of the most difficult passages to understand in the entire Old Testament. And folks that I would normally study on or reach out to to get insights on for the, for the biblical text who normally agree with each other, they all disagreed with each other on how to understand these verses. So then I started to ask pastors and friends that I knew personally, men that know the word of God, and I would trust them with my life, and they disagreed on how to understand these passages. And then by the end of my study this week, I found myself disagreeing with myself about what I thought about these passages. So that's where we're at. And there is a statement in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I'm not saying, you know, confessions are a whole other topic, but there's a statement in the Westminster Confessions of Faith that's actually helpful here. It says, not all parts of the Bible are equally understandable, but all that is necessary for an understanding of salvation is made perfectly plain in the scriptures. Meaning that there are some things mentioned in the Bible that we may never understand or have agreement on, but on the matters of sin, salvation, the Holy Spirit, and many others, those things are made clear. And so just to be completely clear, if I get to the end of this sermon and you say, Colton, you're crazy, I disagree with you, I disagree with some of your interpretations, that's totally okay. This is something in these next few moments that we can disagree on. We can disagree on these things. And this would be a helpful moment also to remind us of the role of apocalyptic literature. Don't snooze off after I say apocalyptic. Some of you just got really excited, and some of you just like completely checked out. But I'm telling you, stay with me here. So what is apocalyptic literature? literature? That very language sounds intimidating to some of us and exciting for others. Like some of you 
have avoided these kinds of texts all your life. Like if you do a Bible reading plan, you get to Ezekiel or Revelation, and within two minutes, you're like, yeah, I'm done, right? And you move on. Uh, Others of you love, you're so excited right now because you love taking the imagery, the the visions, and pulling it apart, looking at different conspiracy theories. But honestly, neither of those approaches are helpful, right? Apocalypses is the Greek word that means to reveal or to uncover. So this type of literature is called apocalyptic because it may deal with things that reveal things about the future. So it is revealing through pictures, pictures, images, and impression. And here's in this moment, here's what you need to remember. If you remember anything else, remember this. We need to focus in these texts on the forest, not the trees, okay? We need to focus on the forest and not the trees. Now, the trees do matter, but if we overinterpret every single tree, we will miss the bigger picture, that we have to ask the question, what does the impression of this give us? Because apocalyptic literature deals with general and purposeful truths, okay? General and purposeful truths and not a secret code. Not a, there's no secret code here that we have to figure out where we lose our way when we try to assume that God is trying to communicate something secret to us. Well, if you connect this thing to that thing and then you move that over here and you add an I and an E and then you put a, um, a Pokemon on top, then that means this. And then if you think about that CNR, CNN article, then, well, there you go. There's the answer. There's not some kind of secret code here. Yes, there is something mysterious about it, but it's meant to reveal truth, not to give us a code. It's not some kind of random allegorical puzzle meant to be discovered. That in all apocalyptic literature, there is a purposeful truth that God is communicating to you. Let me give you a silly example, okay? This is completely made up, by the way. If I stood up here and I told you that I had a vision in my dream last night, and in that vision, I looked over, up over my bed, and I saw a minion standing there. Yes, a minion, like the yellow guy from Despicable Me. And he's sitting at the end of my, di- uh, my bed, and he doesn't have one big eye, but rather he has seven eyes. And then he lifts up his finger, and he says, come here. I'm not going to do a minion voice for you. I'm sorry. Um, but he looks at me, and he says, come here. And so I follow him out of the house, and when we get to the front of the house, there isn't one minion, but there are 77 minions. And then all of a sudden, the 77 minions transformed into 10-foot grasshoppers. And then the grasshoppers grabbed me. They put me on their back, and I became one of them. And then the grasshoppers dropped me into the sea. That is completely made up, I promise. But let's say I had a dream like that, and I came to you, and I said, what do you think it all means? What is more helpful? To pick apart the dream and figure out the secret code? Well, a minion typically only has one eye, but these had seven eyes. Does that have anything to do with anything that's going on? Well, I had seven fries last night for dinner, and then it was 77 steps back to the car. Like, is that really that helpful? (laughs) No. You say, Colton, that is a weird and terrifying dream. You need to be on guard, right? There's a general truth to it. So all that to say, let's not get lost in the trees as we read the text. Let's see the forest and ask God to help us understand the truths that are communicated. So let me tell you what we're not going to do in the next few moments. We're not going to get lost in rabbit holes because it would be relatively easy for me 
but tedious for you for me to try to explain to you all the many different ways that these four verses are explained. And there are a lot of different ways. We will do some of that because that's important. Understanding some of the trees is helpful, but we don't want to get lost in it. So let me just give you an example, because it's fun, of a rabbit trail that I went down this week. Okay, Some ways you can get lost in, that, in this text. Just a little taste. Um, here's one example of something I found from someone who was obsessed with math, and they're trying to figure out, um, has this prophecy been fulfilled? What's the timeline here? What's the chronology? And they had a section in their book called Do the Math. Okay, And here's what they said. From 444 BC to 33 AD, there are 476 years, uh, 476 years of 365 days, or a total of 173,740 days. Okay? If you add this to the 116 days of leap years and the total of actual number of days between the decree to re- rebuild Jerusalem and Christ's death, that is 173,880 days. Now, at this point, I'm like, well, I'm glad you did that math because I'm not going to do that math. And then he goes on and he says, then comes an undefined gap of time, a break in the prophecy until the final last week. And I'm like, I don't see that. Gabriel then spoke of 69-year weeks or 483 years. And then he says, using a stylized prophetic 360-day-year calendar, this multiplies out to 483 times 360, which is 173,000 880, and that is the number that you're looking for in this prophecy. Are you confused? Me too. It's not helpful. So let me ask you a question to to tie a bow in this. Do you really think that it would have occurred to Daniel to try and sit down and put together some kind of algorithm to figure all this out? This word was given to Daniel so that he would what? Understand. This word was given to Daniel so that he would understand. And so that we, when we read it, we would understand as well. And here's an important principle to know when you come to texts that you just can't understand. We should always, always, we should understand and interpret what is unclear in light of what is clear and not the other way around. We should understand and interpret what is unclear in light of what is clear and not the other way around. So we don't start with a single passage in a Bible or a book and then try to understand the entire Bible based on that one passage. You look at that one verse and consider it within the revealed word, the entire Bible, because every single passage in this book is true, every single passage. But some are easier to understand than others. And it's important that when you come to a singular section of Scripture that you ask the question, how does the rest of God's revealed word help me here? How does it reveal truth? Because God does not waste a single word in our scriptures. It all ties together. So with all that said, we're going to attempt to understand these verses to the best of our ability and with the help of the Holy Spirit. So verse 24, here we go. Let's dive into the abyss. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. So we are told six things here, six blessings marked out by these 70 weeks. One, transgressions will be finished. Two, sins will be brought to an end. Third, there will be an atonement for iniquity. Fourth, 
everlasting righteousness. So a new kingdom, an everlasting righteous kingdom will be established. Fifth, vision and prophecy will be sealed. Now let me say something about sealed here. To seal something can mean to authenticate something. So at the end of these 77s, we will have an end to visions and prophecy. Um, It will be authenticated, right? Um, Sorry, it will be authenticated. It will be vindicated. Or something, to seal something can mean that there's an end that's put to it. So at the end of the 77s, we will have an end to visions and prophecy. It makes me think of Hebrews 1.1, where it says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Six, a part of this prophecy is that the most holy will be anointed. Now, there is some question whether this is a holy person or a holy place. We aren't really sure which one. Now, if you look at the forest and I asked you, who are these verses talking about? You would say, Jesus, right? You would be correct. That if you consider the whole Bible in light of this passage, we can all agree that this is exactly what Jesus did. He made an end to the power of sin. He atoned for our sins. He sacrificed, uh, sacrificed himself and stood in our place and took the wrath of God where we deserve. Now, if we dive into the forest and we start to look at the trees and we ask the question, okay, so when has he done it? And how has he done it? Has it been completed? And you start to ask those more detailed questions. So let's ask the question, have all six of these things been completed? There's actually a lot of disagreement on that. So while it is agreed that this passage is in fact talking about Jesus, it is disagreed on when these things are fulfilled and how they are fulfilled. There are some that believe that all of verse 24 has been completed, that it has all been fulfilled, that in the coming of Christ, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his ascension, And then if you take into consideration the temple being destroyed in 70 AD, that all of this has been done. Others suggest, verse 24, not as a summary of what has already happened, but rather a prophecy that is related to what is going to happen. And that all this will be completed when Christ comes back. Now, what do I think? And grant me some grace here. I'm 33, so ask me again when I'm 66. I may disagree with my younger self. Um... I think that what we have here is a summary of what Christ has accomplished in his incarnation, his death, and resurrection. Yet, because of all that follows, it's hard for me to say that's all that it is. So I personally think that while, yes, some of these things, these six things, have already been done, I also think that it foreshadows some things that are yet to come. Because there are things represented in verse 24 that are related to verses 25 through 27, And we would be fools not to acknowledge that through Christ, some of these things have been accomplished. But remember, we have to consider what is unclear with what is clear, right? And so consider Ephesians 1.10 that says that God's will has been set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So here's the question. Has he done that? Has he united all things in him, all things in heaven, and all things on earth? Well, I would say yes and no. That we have to acknowledge that at this moment, time we are in, between the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, and the return of Christ, 
that in between those two events, the things of heaven and the things of earth don't feel that united, do they? So in one sense, yes, Christ has united us with him. He has reconciled us, that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. But in another sense, we still feel the weight of our sin, don't we? We still feel the weight of suffering. We still feel the shame and guilt. We still see the world in chaos. And here Paul says that God set forth a plan for when? For the fullness of time. And I would argue that the fullness of time has not yet come, that there is still much for God to do. So my assumption is that, yes, in one sense, some of the things mentioned here in 24 have been fulfilled, but there is still more to come. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. Now we don't have time to go through every aspect of these few verses, but verse 25 attempts to tell us, but not really tell us at all, when the prophecy will begin. And that specifically it's going to happen with the restoration of Jerusalem, and many have tried to establish an exact date for the beginning of this prophecy. Some have said it's the decree of Artaxerxes in 458 BC, where he made provision for Ezra and the returning of the exiles there. Some say it's Nehemiah in 445 BC. And by the way, this is where you get people obsessed with the math here in this text, that some have attempted to make the math work out to exactly match up with Christ's crucifixion. But here's the deal on that. One, we don't know the exact date of Christ's crucifixion. And we we don't know it. We don't know the exact date of Christ's crucifixion. And our faith doesn't hinge on knowing that. We know a time frame, but definitely not an exact date. Two, we aren't meant to read these prophecies as exact dates and years. That's not the intention here. I think there's a much more obvious starting point for the prophetic clock when you consider all the context here. And there's many who agree with this, that it's the decree of Cyrus in 538 BC for the exiles to return and rebuild the temple. And here's why I think that. This is connected to Daniel. For you are greatly loved. This is to encourage Daniel. And Daniel would have seen this happen in his life. He would have known about this. He would have been alive in 538 BC. So he would have seen the good news of the 77s beginning to unfold. And we also have proof of this in other parts of the Bible, like 2 Chronicles 36, 21. It should be on the screen, but it says, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land has enjoyed its Sabbath um, all the days that it lay desolate, it, keeps, it kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. So we have connection with Jeremiah's prophecy And we have a reference to the 70 years here. Verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says... Um, Thus says Cyrus king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord God be with you. You see something similar in Ezra 1, and you see something similar in 
Zaya. And so let me go to verse 26. We're going to do some jumping around here. Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one. So we see another character here. An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Now, who do you think the anointed one is? If you said Jesus, you are correct, right? Because in Isaiah 53, 8, there's similar language here. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that Jesus was what? Cut off, cut off out of the land of the living. So it is widely believed that this is referring to Jesus. But then we get introduced to someone else in verse 26. So after 62 weeks, an anointed one, Jesus, the Messiah. In fact, some of your translations may say Messiah. Um, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So who then is the prince mentioned in verse 26? This is probably the most widely debated part of this prophecy. Many believe that that is a reference to someone named Titus in 70 AD, because historically, that's exactly what happened. Titus, the leader of the Roman authorities, destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, okay? Now, the other popular understanding, and this is where I tend to lean of this passage, is to believe that the prince here is the same person as the anointed one. So the prince and the anointed one are both Jesus the Messiah. And this is where this week I began to disagree with myself and what I've always believed about this passage. So you are probably like me earlier this week and where I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. how is that possible? How can that be? Because if the prince is Christ, then why would the people of the prince destroy the city? It's interesting. That was a common interpretation in the first century, that the Jewish people, by their disobedience and rejection of Jesus the Messiah, that they were the ones that were actually responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem. So has anyone here ever heard of someone named Josephus? Right? Jewish historian. We base much of our knowledge of first century Jewish culture on Josephus, in his book, The War of the Jews, he argued that the destruction of Jerusalem was the responsibility of his own people. So it's actually not that far-fetched to believe that the prince is the same person as the anointed one when you understand that it was widely believed that the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was actually due to the disobedience of the Jewish people. So the people of the prince. Do you see it? Jump to verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the de desolator. Now, listen closely. Don't fall asleep. Don't lose me, okay? Verse 27 employs what, is, what some refer to as prophetic parallel, parallelism. I can't even say parallel. Parallelism. Okay, what in the world is that? It means what we see in verse 26 and 27 is not meant to be read as two separate events, but that it is the same event explained in two different ways. Look at it. There are four distinct elements. I'm trying to explain this as simply as possible. Verse 26, there is an anointed one. The second half of verse 26, there's what? Desolation. 
Beginning of verse 27, a covenant to be made. End of verse 27, desolation. Verse 27 repeats the same chronology as verse 26. So rather than reading it as A, so verse 26 and 7, A, B, C, D, you are meant to read it as A, B, A, B. Think of it this way. If I were to say to you, tonight, dad will return, we will go out to eat, he shall meet us from work, to the restaurant we shall go. If I said that, would you understand that to mean dad returns, we go out to eat, and then another man meets us from work, and to the restaurant we go? No, that would be foolish. A, B, A, B. After dad gets done with work, we're going out to eat, right? That's what that would mean. Okay, does your brain work? Does it work? Does it hurt? You good? Welcome to my world last few weeks. I'm glad I have forced you to join me. The beauty of expository preaching. What does it all mean? Okay, there's a lot of different, we could look at a lot more trees and we could go down a lot more rabbit holes and, and they would be helpful for you to know, but we just don't have time for it. Let's look at the forest. Here's what you should take away from these four verses. This prophecy was meant to bring hope to the people of God, not confusion. It was meant to bring hope to the people of God, not confusion. Daniel and the rest of the people of God had been removed. Think about that. Removed from the presence of God and placed in exile. Think about, like we have, if you are a believer, the Holy Spirit living in you. Imagine being removed from that access to know the hope, the love, the joy of God. Thinking about losing that should affect us. That's the most precious thing, to, to lose access to knowing God. And he's lost access to it. And God, in his grace and mercy towards Daniel, shows Daniel a plan. He's encouraging Daniel. He's saying, Daniel, I have a plan to bring you and the people back to me. And it's no different for us. We still feel the weight of this world. All things are not united yet. We still feel the weight. And while, yes, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, he has reconciled, we still feel the weight of not being in glory yet. And the promise is the same for us. There will be a day when all will be right again. And that leads to my second point. Our suffering will end. Daniel was asking the question, how long will this last? How long is this exile going to go on? How long are we going to be separate from, from one another? And we ask a similar question. God, how long will my suffering last? How long is this going to go on. How long will I feel the weight of guilt and shame? How many more people that I love am I going to have to bury because of the sting of death? How much longer am I going to be frustrated? How much longer will the people of God choose the world over you? And there's an old hymn that says, the pessimist can look down and the fearful can look around, but the believer lifts up his eyes. The pessimist can look down, the fearful can look around, but the believer lifts up their eyes because there is hope because they've been promised, I will return. And so we wait. We patiently wait for the one who has promised that he will come back for us. We wait for the day of shalom where there will be no more tears, where you won't have to, 
to live by faith anymore. You're actually going to see the face of your king, the face of your savior. And third, this prophecy teaches us, man, that we all long for the presence of God. Daniel longed more than anything else, the presence of God. That's what he truly wanted. That was why this idea of the temple being rebuilt was such a crucial issue. The temple was the place for the people of God where God dwelled. It's, it's the place where they enjoy God, where they know God, where his presence is. And he longed to experience God. He longed to know God. And God is giving him a gift here saying, hey, look, you may not understand all of this, but I have a plan to bring you back. And we're no different, man. In the midst of the chaos, the anxiety, the uncertainty of life, we long for the presence of God. And the gift that we have that Daniel did not is that we have the Holy Spirit in us. And this Holy Spirit reminds us day in and day out, this is not your home. First Peter 2.11, I love it. He says, beloved, loved ones, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What does he call us? Exiles. Just like Daniel, we don't belong here. You don't belong in this place. It's okay to feel uneasy about that, to feel like things aren't right because they're not. What we have with the Holy Spirit in this age is a glimpse of the hope to come. It's a glimpse of the king that's coming on the clouds and that will rescue us from our suffering and we will worship him forever and ever and ever. Hebrews 13, 14 says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. But that day's not here yet, but that in this time of waiting, he has made a way for us to know him, to help us understand our sin and to help us understand his grace. And so what do we do? What is our job here? What is our role while we wait? What are we to do? We attempt to live for the glory of God, for the glory of God, in complete surrender, in absolute surrender. Like, he is worthy of every ounce of our affection. He is worthy of every ounce of our affection He is worthy of every ounce of our devotion. Christ is better than anything in this world. And if there's a voice in your head that's telling you that there is something that is better than him, that voice is lying. Don't waste your life on empty promises that cannot deliver. The second thing, we bring the gospel in this time between Christ's death and resurrection and his return, we are tasked with bringing this gospel to a world that is desperate for hope. They are confused, they are misguided, and we are salt. We are light. So while we might be exiles, we are exiles with a purpose, with a task to share with the world death has not won, to share with the world that there is something that is better, to share with the world that the blood of Christ covers you, and he puts a robe on you that's white as snow to share with the world that there is a kingdom that is better that does not reflect this world, but it reflects a different world altogether. That we live daily, led by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, with a shout of unashamed glory. Christ has come, and Christ is coming again.